1: DIY and How Studios presents From Toronto, Canada Muses and Stuff With your hosts, Shanti and Lynx Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts Music Culture technology and rock and roll so grab those backstage passes and let's get to the show
2: over here at muses headquarters we are super busy with full-time jobs hobbies and this podcast we need to fuel up with nourishing healthy and balanced meals that's where
0: sunbasket comes in Sunbasket offers 18 quick, healthy recipes every week, including paleo, gluten-free, vegan, and calorie-conscious options, all delivered to your door with organic produce and clean ingredients. I feel best when I'm eating paleo, and Lynx is vegetarian, so there really is something for everyone, and you don't have to worry about the details. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals
2: at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen.
0: Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sun Basket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. Easily cook dishes like Buddha bowls with braised tofu, soba noodles, and cashew lime dressing. Basically everything we love eating. Yeah. There's paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more. Sun Basket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. This is super important to me when I'm choosing my meat. Everything is pre-measured and
2: delivered right to your door. You get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in
0: as little as 15 minutes. Sweet. There's something for everyone, so you can be your kind of healthy. Go to sunbasket.com muses today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com muses, M-U-S-E-S, for $35 off. sunbasket.com muses. Hey there. Hello, Lynx. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing better in the last couple of days, so I've almost completely gotten my voice back. Yes. It sounds really adorable, though.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, but I'm glad it's coming back we talked a couple days ago
0: and I couldn't even recognize your voice. Yeah, I called you on the phone because we were supposed to record a few days ago. And I was like, you know what? I better call Lynx and just let her know what I sound like. And then if she thinks that it's bad, then we'll reschedule. So we No one would know it's Shanti and Lynx. They'd be like, who is this? (laughs) Who's that that old old (laughs) man? (laughs) Who's now the co-host of the podcast? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so anyways, it's a good thing that I'm not presenting this week. So you're going to be doing most of the talking that's I'm right. going to be drinking tea and giving some thumbs up, head nods, and uh, maybe asking a couple questions here and there. Perfect. Yeah. So we've got Lynx presenting an episode today, and I presented the episode last week. And then um, for those who love. Um, the interview will have lots of those coming up. And mm-hmm. trust me, we have some exciting, exciting things planned. Absolutely. And our network. I almost can't even believe it.
2: Yeah. Our network, Rock and Roll Archaeology, there's plenty of amazing interviews and shows on there as well. If you're, you know,
0: looking for something in between our episodes. So yeah. check that out as Head well. over to rockandrollarchaeology.com and check out their shows and their merch and um, give a little donation to... Yeah. Patreon and what's not? So this episode is going
2: to be about the Cramps. So the Cramps were one of my favorite bands from the punk era, sort of. You'll find out. Two people
0: are important in the Cramps. Lux Interior and Poison Ivy. Well, those names are amazing, right? And for anybody who's new to our podcast, Mm -hmm. we should just say that we love talking about the... Inspiration behind the music. Um, the wives, the groupies, the girlfriends. Yes. And then we've expanded out to talk about, um. Yes. (laughs) This one sort of covers both. You're going to hear the story of a rock and roll band, but you're also going to hear
2: the love story between Lux and Ivy. Perfect.
0: Yeah. So this is like, I love these kinds of stories. Yes. These amazing love stories and. They're uh, an incredible rock and roll history. Original couple. I love them to death. So. I'm very happy to be presenting this. Before you do. Yes. We don't do this often, but we're going to give a listener shout out. Oh, yeah. I don't know why we don't do it. We have so many beautiful comments from people. I know. We get the odd, not so nice comment, <laughs> usually from some guy who makes fun of us for not uh knowing where... What was it? Some not, small... Not knowing where Harvard is or like not knowing what city oh, yeah. Harvard I mixed is up, in. I mixed up Harvard and... uh what was it? I don't know. I mixed up Harvard with something else. Yeah, and he Harvard, called us
2: Nitwits. I mixed it up, okay?
0: <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> anyway. know what? Guys, it's alright. We don't get everything right here. We don't claim to be music historians. We don't have a... PhD and we're Canadian. Uh, you tell me where Queens is and I'll tell you where all your yeah. universities are. Yeah. Point out Newfoundland on a map. <laughs> um, but you know what, if we ever do get something wrong, let's say I'm totally fine with correcting things and be like, Oh, Absolutely. We did get that wrong. just let us know what it was in like a kind way. Um, like there was once we got like a, a good episode, but you had some things wrong, but it's like, what? Let us know, you know, like be specific. Cause it's hard to go back into episodes and be like, so what exactly was it? You know? There's a lot of stuff going on and you can't catch it all, but we try our best. And yeah, we wanted to shout out Chase Sully. Yeah. So this was such a nice um Instagram message from a teenage girl that just loves music and what I thought was so sweet that um she mentioned that she loves this genre of music that people her age aren't quite interested in. So our podcast helps her connect to the music. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for yeah. listening. That's so
2: special, too, because I absolutely was that teenager. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good to know. You know, I wish I had uh, found a podcast back then. It didn't exist, really, I don't think. So, Yeah. yeah, kind of invented our own. And we'll see you at the next Toronto Dolls meetup. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of, that was an amazing time. We had an amazing time with Pamela, and we met a bunch of amazing dolls
0: recently, and... Yeah, we're still kind of flying, flying yeah. high on that. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. All right. Well, speaking of exciting time, I'm ready for the episode links. Hit All me. Right. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lux first. His real name is
2: Eric Lee Perkheiser. He was born in 1946, October 21st in a suburban town called Stowe, which is located just outside of Akron in Ohio, a little ways away. His parents were pretty conventional, very Catholic. His father worked at the local Goodyear plant. Stowe and Akron weren't the greatest places to grow up. Very industrial, lots of environmental issues. And most of the men in the town worked like 40, 50 hour weeks. The men worked hard,
0: but partied hardier, hardier, harder. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they party hardy. I get that. Yeah. I come from that kind of town, too. Um, to give you an idea, Akron
2: is actually the birthplace of the first Alcoholics Anonymous site, <laughs> which was founded 11 years before Lux was born. So that's Akron for you. So, like many musicians and music lovers, Lux had an older brother who he describes as a juvenile delinquent who turned him onto rock and roll at an early age. He also developed his taste for the weirder side of life as a young child. He devoured books, comics, radio shows, B-movies. A big comic he loved was Tales from the Crypt, which the font That's the font that the Cramps
0: would later use for their logo. Did you point them out when we were at the um, Rock and Roll Hall Fame? They definitely aren't in there. Oh, I thought they might. There
2: might be like thought we went into that one
0: room where you were like, "Hey, I went crazy
2: over the punk stuff for sure." They, I don't, I don't remember them being there. They're they're one of those bands that have always. Just been under the radar of getting the recognition they deserve. Okay. So in 57, Lux discovered a radio DJ named Pete Mad Daddy Myers, and he really became a key figure in Lux's road to rock and roll. I was curious about Pete, so I went on YouTube and you can find some of his radio shows on there and it's super awesome. The music kicks ass. It's completely obvious that Lux was greatly inspired by him. Likewise, for television, there was a weekly show called Shock Theater that played all the terrible movies you can imagine and had a crazy host named Ghoul, Gulardi, And he was always getting into trouble for doing crazy things on TV, but the ratings were insane. So they kind of kept it going. And kids like Lux were like devouring it. Uh, You can also find some of his stuff on YouTube. He was a crazy one. So Lux watched his brother and his friends and all the other high schoolers going to hops, playing gigs at rallies, you know, committing minor crimes. Mm -hmm. And he really couldn't wait to become a teenager himself. And of course, he got to that age and he and his buddies did the exact same thing. And Lux even had a younger brother who began to idolize him. And also, he also handed down his love of music. So his younger brother actually ended up following in his footsteps. He was playing in bands and eventually his brother ended up becoming a studio producer and engineer. So music's in their blood. When Lux reached his twenties, the world changed. Vietnam was looming. His options were limited. So he decided to take the educational route, hoping to avoid being enlisted by moving to California and enrolling at Sacramento State. That oh, sounds like a pretty good plan. Yes, so this would be a life changing decision because this is where he meets Ivy. So let me tell you a little about Poison Ivy, or Ivy Rorschach. Sometimes she goes by that as well. I she can't was- wait to see pictures of. Oh them. my God! You, you're gonna. I should have sent you some music beforehand, but we'll listen after. She was born Christy Marlena Wallace on February 20th, 1953 in San Bernardino. She was the youngest of three kids and was doted on by her family. Her dad was an engineer in the aerospace industry, and her mother sort of worked as an interior decorator. The family, they would buy houses, redo them, and then flip them. So Ivy and her siblings were never in the same place for too long, which of course is unsettling to kids. She was never at school long enough to make real friends. She really kind of became her own best friend, inventing her own worlds. Uh, she also grew up with music around her. Her maternal grandmother was a pianist, and her paternal grandfather was a violinist. And like Lux, uh, she had older siblings who would play records all the time. And uh, she said, my mom who had a beautiful singing voice would always sing along if an elvis record came on the radio and my sister and i would sing together in the back seat of a car if a girl group came on the radio nice yeah so there was always musical moments happening around her it was her older brother who introduced her to the guitar he was he played he taught her some songs she fooled around with it she taught herself but that was more fun than something serious at the time it's just a passing interest at school ivy was always an outsider and the older she got the more she grew to embrace that she got a kick out of playing it up she began smoking wearing lots of makeup getting into fights with teachers it sounds just like me mm-hmm. um embracing her own rebellious image kind of led to her embracing her like outsider rock and roll Persona. She was always on the hunt for like not so mainstream music or novelty records, if you will. Think like, um, Purple People Eater or Martian Hop. Both her and Lux discovered Link Ray. You've definitely heard Link Ray before. Rumble is probably the most popular. Anyone who's seen Pulp Fiction knows that song. Oh, okay. I think it's, um, The uncomfortable silence moment when they're sitting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great instrumental. Another great instrumentalist was Dwayne Eddy, who they also really were highly influenced by. He has some great songs, Rebel Rouser, because they're young. So Ivy began going to see concerts with all the bands that we kind of normally talk about, the Stones, the Yardbirds, Hendrix. It was actually Bo Diddley that kind of changed things for her, though. Bo had a band that featured a second guitarist who was known as the Duchess. I believe the Duchess was actually multiple talented women who filled in over the years. I don't know which one specifically Ivy saw, but she was in awe. Not only of a badass woman playing guitar on stage, but of their image. She says, they did all of this synchronized box step stuff and she was in gold lemay That just burned through my brain permanently. So I had pants made and the high heels. A lot of time, if I'm not wearing boots, I wear high heel mules because she wore them.
0: Nice. Yeah. Also, can I just say that it's hilarious to hear that you were getting into fights with teachers, and I was a total teacher's pet. <laughs> like we couldn't be more opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: funny. Yeah, I was definitely was not the best student back then. <laughs> well, that's, that's another I, story. I was an A
0: plus student, and look, we're both here right now, aren't we? Exactly so ivy got through high school
2: she decided like lux to register at sacramento state neither of them actually really cared about the academic side of things they were both more focused on the creative and of course discovering music and all the drugs that were going on at the time like just living the adventurous 60s dream i guess so lucky for them the whole campus was like this including the teachers who allowed students to grade themselves half the time great right Of course, it's here where both of them are also finding people like them who kind of don't fit into social norms. Lux was very hardcore when it came to his drug use back then. He said he'd take mescaline every day for like seven months straight. Mm -hmm. So both Lux and Ivy had already began kind of adopting these personas of You know, being a little wacky, Lux went by Angel for a time back in Akron, as well as Raven Beauty and my personal favorite, Vip Vop. Good one. Right? Imagine having to say that name like over and over. Hey, Vip Vop. Hey, Vip Vop. Yeah. Luckily, he found his true self with Lux. Lux Interior, inspired by car commercials and ivy was always ivy or poison ivy though and that was slightly inspired by batman comics but mostly by the coaster song
3: she comes on like a rose but everybody knows she'll get you in touch you can look but you better not touch Water.
0: I like that band. Yeah, they're great. Who doesn't though, right?
2: So, Lex, being a little older, had been there for some time when Ivy first enrolled. And interestingly, they didn't meet on campus, but rather when Ivy was hitchhiking. The first you could do that. Back yes, then. exactly. He says, the first time I saw her, she was walking down the street hitchhiking and she was wearing a halter top and short shorts with a big hole in the ass with red panties showing through. I was with this other guy and we both went, Ooh, <laughs> we pulled over. And I think I had a heart on about three seconds after I saw her. So there How you go. romantic! Have it. True love. As for Ivy, she says, I'd seen him around the campus and thought he was extremely exotic. He would have these pants and each leg of the pants was a different color. That kind of thing fascinated me. I'd seen him around town before and was already impressed. So I was really glad to meet him that way. It was destiny. There's also another quote from Ivy about their meeting that I love, which is, I was a teenage hitchhiker and he gave me a ride. He's been giving me a ride ever since. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> So they ended up in a class together. Get this. Only, only in like the late sixties, early seventies. Art and shamanism. Yes. Right? Yes. And it's in this class that they really connect. I felt like I'd known him all my life. It was like we hadn't just met. That first day in class, the teacher had everyone holding hands to like share energy, of course. Nice. And Lux says, it was great. It really worked. But just holding hands with her, I felt a thousand times the energy I was getting from him, meaning the teacher. She was incredibly beautiful. That was the first thing I noticed. Then when I talked to her, she was incredibly smart too. We just had a
0: bond. That's wicked. I took, um, like a history of the occult class. Oh yeah. Um, in university and I'm like a cute goth boy. Did you hold hands and we did not. Oh, that's about as far as that went. No, we became Facebook friends, Uh, which is not the same thing. Really.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they ended up moving in together within a fortnight. What's a fortnight? A fortnight <laughs> is 2 weeks, okay? They ended up moving in together within 2 weeks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Friends tried to warn them off such, you know, quick shacking up. But as Ivy says, we fell in love very quickly. We were just together constantly and we were pretty much out of our minds constantly. To be honest, we didn't come to the surface for a long time. Sexy. They were happy. So they quickly discovered that they both shared this really unique love of music. And within a few days of meeting each other, they were already discussing, you know, the possibilities of them starting a band. Well... There were a few current bands like the New York Dolls, the Stooges, T-Rex that they did enjoy. They found most of their inspiration from like old thrift stores. They'd buy all these cheap old records and basically discover this old kind of rockabilly sound that had just been kind of lost nice yeah so they're listening to this they're absolutely loving it and realizing like the stones and zeppelin are doing for the blues like we could do this for rockabilly you know like why not we can we can do this so i've actually got a job at Goodwill to like ensure that she'd be there for the trucks to pull in. So they'd be the first to like get records. That's how important these records were to them. They also discovered an article in Rolling Stone magazine that detailed the existence of a sun records warehouse in Memphis, where you could buy five records for $1. Oh my heart. Right? So this led to a road trip where they stocked up on all the records they could afford. They went down to Memphis just to buy all these records. Um, they are absolutely famous for their killer record collection so this was really the beginning of that you can look up um again on youtube and like see their record collection there's photos of them it's they have like a whole record room it's uh, i would kill to go in that room and listen to those records oh, that's so
0: neat well pleas and i have kept in touch so yes. you know we've always got friends over it at-
2: go to the warehouse yeah so they really wanted to do their research before jumping into the music themselves another Sun Records, fun fact. Lux was highly influenced vocally by Charlie Feathers, who worked at Sun for a time as a session musician. He was sort of an unsung hero of sorts. No one really gives him the credit that he deserves. and He very much influenced rockabilly and tons of artists that came after him. A couple records, if people want to look him up, That Certain Female or Can't Hardly Stand It, I recommend those. So Ivy and Lux ended up back in the Midwest, partly because, as Ivy puts it, There was a legal issue in California that they they don't they don't go on. I think being very unorthodox in their looks and lifestyle choices kind of made them stand out. And they did get their fair bit of attention from the police. (laughs) But yeah, they don't elaborate much more than that. But they needed to get away from California for a bit. Okie dokie then. I think it's hilarious that they decided to go back to Akron of all places because I'm sure they stood out even more there. Yeah. But it was probably great for record collecting, you know, scouring new thrift shops and whatnot. It's in Akron where they really start to take the idea of forming a band seriously. Ivy said, I think being together, not just as a couple, but as partners in crime, that you can get each other wound up in a way that a person alone can't. We convinced each other that it was a viable option to have our own band and that everybody would think it was cool. It was kind of a delusion, except that we succeeded with it. Mm-hmm. So they're reading about this scene that's happening in New York, this punk scene, CBGBs, Max's, bands like television, Patti Smith, Blondie, the Ramones, Talking Heads. So in 1975, they travel to Manhattan to see some of these bands and everything. And that's when they kind of cemented in their brain, like, yes, this is the scene we're meant to be in. It's a stiff competition. Oh, God. Yeah. But they're all just starting out like it's, they're not famous yet. Okay. But it's great music coming out of there. So they're like, we want to be here. So they make the wise decision to leave Akron and set up base in New York City on East 73rd, to be exact, if you're a New York nut like I am. <laughs> so they had no jobs, no money. Their apartment was so tiny, it barely fit them and their records, but they were happy to be there, finally working toward being a real band. It's Ivy who came up with the name The Cramps a year before when they were just, you know, dreaming of making things happen and they stuck with that. Um, as in, like, Lady Cramps? I I'm not positive, like I think it multiple meanings. I'm sure that had something to do with it though. I mean It's pretty badass. It's, yeah, exactly. So since she grew up playing guitar here and there, it was a natural for her to kind of gravitate toward that role and same with Lux, who was always just kind of a natural performer and commanded attention. So he was
0: gonna be the singer. I love it when bands get together that like have never really played instruments before, but they're like, Let's learn the instruments yeah, so as that we, we go. can most people it's it's
2: amazing like joy division did that didn't they i think so yeah most people learn and then try to seek out forming a band but the punk scene is very different most of them just jumped into it yeah yeah so lux did eventually find work in a record shop on lexington and 85th called musical maze which helped them get on their feet a little more, and that's where he became friendly with his coworker, Greg Beckerleg, who shared similar taste in music and a desire to be in a band. Greg, because you'll find out, if you're a cramp, you gotta have a cool name. Mm-hmm. So Greg changes his name to Brian Gregory. He had an obsession with Brian Jones, and he like he. he I think he kind of thought he was Brian Jones, or he wanted to be Brian Jones.
0: Is he Brian with an I, or with a Y? With a Y. Alrighty then. Yeah. So,
2: from now on, Greg is Brian when I'm speaking. Now Lux and Ivy were excited to have this new bass player in the band, but Brian got a little overexcited at the idea of being in a band, and he immediately went off, bought a guitar at a pawn shop, and even stenciled the cramps on the case. They did not have the heart to tell him we need a bass player. So it was decided instead they just have two guitarists. Right. In the end, Brian sort of was the bass player. His guitar would be tuned lower. He did sort of the bass lines while Ivy hand- handled like lead guitar stuff. So it worked out. Uh, the previous year before they actually officially moved to New York City, they'd met a 19 year old girl named Miriam Lena, who is a student at Kent State, and they hit it off with her, asked her to join the band as a drummer, completely unfazed again by the fact that she'd never played drums <laughs> before. Um, Mir- Miriam was excited about the idea, but she wasn't quite there yet with, you know, making life decisions, like dropping everything and moving to New York City. So what happened was Brian's sister, Pamela, who also had no experience, she kind of joined for a little bit to be the drummer. So they're finally playing together, rehearsing, learning their instruments, forming technique. Uh, Lucky for them, Lux and Brian's boss at Music Maze allowed them to rehearse in the store's basement.
0: I love how back in the day you could get on your feet working at a record store. In in Manhattan. Yeah. Unbelievable.
2: That's the dream right there. Um, So they started with lots of covers, but Lux and Ivy had also begun to play around and write their own music. So they were working on originals as well. Um, it's interesting, they were attempting to learn these songs they loved, but since none of them really knew how to play, they could not cover them as precisely as if they did know how to play. Uh, it was a little more stripped down, and that kind of ended up creating their sound, like a, this unique sound almost by accident. So Pam didn't last long. She didn't share the dreams that they had, but Miriam decided, okay, maybe I will try this. So Miriam says... I was in a band and I had yet to find a pair of drumsticks, let alone a job or a place to live. Sweet. Right? The group was... Oh, the things you can do when
0: you're 19 years old.
2: The group was like about four months into rehearsal, but she kind of fit in nicely. Um, Fun fact, she was born in Sudbury. Wait,
0: what? Yeah, Miriam. My my Sudbury? Your Sudbury. You're freaking kidding (laughs) me. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Ivy did end up finding a job as well that suited her and which paid big bucks. She began working as a dominatrix. Hell yeah. Yeah. So that really helped them out financially, let them focus on the band. And she was working as a cocktail waitress before that. So she kind of threw that away, focused on the dominatrix stuff. And you can see the influence of that job kind of in her stage persona and costumes as well. She she looks great in latex, let me tell you. Yeah. (sighs) So after a few months of rehearsals and finding their sound, they convinced Hilly Crystal to give them an audition Hilly Crystal. Hilly Crystal. He was the manager, he might've been the owner, sorry, of CBGB's. So you needed to be friends with Hilly to get a gig there. They convinced Hilly to let them open for the Dead Boys, who I love as well. The Dead Boys had Stiv Bader's in it who BB dated.
0: Oh, neat. Okay. Um She's talking about BBBL Yes. Uh um, legendary muse. Exactly.
2: Actually, you know it's funny, I think the Dead Boys were also from uh, Ohio. So their first gig was at November first, nineteen seventy-six. Peter Crowley was in the audience that night, and Peter worked for Max's Kansas City booking shows there. So Hilly watches the cramps and is less than impressed with this first gig, but Peter's like, there's potential here. Like, I'm, I want, I want to see more of this. So he immediately asked them to perform at Max's. In fact, he asked them to play every Saturday night, which they did right into 1977. They were opening for bands like Suicide, Blondie, and Mink DeVille. So Max's wasn't an easy gig to play either. Audiences there were really known for being quite vicious. They'd heckle, fights were breaking out. They let you know whether they liked you or not. So they were thrown right into the deep end from the get go, but they never let that phase them. And those Saturday nights were extremely important for the band's progress as a group. Their musicianship grew. They learned how to, you know, work the most unfriendly crowds. Uh, they were beginning to get a following as well. One thing that always stood out was Ivy's skill on guitar though. Really? She was leaps and bounds ahead of the others. Oh, and cool. she, yeah, she really does not get credit for how much of a kick ass guitar player. She really was. Uh, no doubt the talent drove, you know, the other members in the band to push harder as well. So by March of 77, Hilly Crystal had seen enough improvement in the band to give them another slot at CBGB's, again opening for the Dead Boys. And in April, they got their h- huge break when the Ramones asked them if they would open for them. Ivy says, They gave us our start, really. Before we played with them, we weren't much known at all. It was great. That was the biggest break we've had in our entire lives because then we could play and get booked on our own and things started from there. So the Ramones were really at the top of the punk totem pole in New York City, even though they didn't end up becoming the most commercially successful. They were really the first to get signed and get set up in that kind of whole scene. Blondie, talking heads, like they kind of came after. So Lux and Ivy would end up becoming lifelong friends with Joey and Johnny and lots of amazing things happened because of the Ramones seeing their talent. They played their first gig ever outside of Manhattan opening for them. Their fan place was like really growing thanks to that exposure. They even got their first headlining gigs at CBGB's and Max's all because of that. So they were like selling out shows within like a year. They were so different from most of the bands in the punk scene, though, that while fans got it, critics really didn't. Mm -hmm. They got a couple mixed reviews at first, but for the most part, they were just completely ignored by the media, which really should have been paying attention to them. And while they did make friends with the bands, like the Ramones, the New York scene at the time was very, very cliquey. Yeah. Yeah. And they totally did not fit in anywhere. So just like when they were kids, they were kind of sidelined as outsiders and punk would soon kind of be moving in a different direction you know like new wave would be coming after that and it's like punk on top of punk yeah they were like punk on punk so yeah there's this this strange thing where people just didn't really know what to make of them at the time so about a year in miriam decided to quit the band she had different music tastes than the others there's going to be a lot of changes in the band coming up. All right. Just, but Lux and Ivy, they, they are the band, right? So she went on to be in other bands and form a label in the eighties with her husband called Norton records. She also wrote and published multiple magazines and a book. So go Miriam. She's yeah, kick ass. Uh, there were no hard feelings between her and the band. They found a replacement in another Ohioan named mm-hmm. uh, Nick Stepanoff, who would become known as Nick Knox. So it was very lucky they found him when they did because it was about a fortnight later. (laughs) I know what that means now. That the band was invited not only to perform, but record in Memphis by big tops and big star frontman Alex Chilton. Nick actually played his first gig with the band there. And it was also the biggest crowd they'd ever had with about a thousand in attendance. Now, the Cramps had actually been invited to record once before in New York City. It was a bit of a disaster. They just they weren't quite ready for it yet. But Nick had more experience in the past. He was a drummer, so that was good. And it just gelled right away. So when he came on board, everything worked out for them. Also, recording with Alex was different. He understood them. He was more on their level. They recorded at multiple studios in Memphis, at Ardent with Children, and guess where else? Where? Sun Studio. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So they were working with uh, Jim Dickinson there. And when talking about recording there, Lux said, by the time we had almost collected every Sun label single, so we were really in awe of that building and Sam Phillips. And then we met him. Yeah. We had to stay overnight in the studio because we got locked in and we met him. It was a dream or something. How could this be happening? We were told he never comes to the studio, but he showed up with a chainsaw to cut down the vines that had Sweet. grown over the name block. It was a magical experience. So their time in Memphis was successful. They had a handful of unmixed songs on their hands. They headed back to New York City. They recorded four of the covers they performed live, as well as a couple originals, including the Mad Daddy, um, which was a tribute to that Pete Myers guy, that radio DJ, and Human Fly,
3: When I'm a human fly, I, I said, it is I say, but, 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 and it's just because I'm a human fly, and I don't know why. I got
1: 96 tears, 96 eyes, I gotta go this that's driving
3: me insane, and I don't like the
2: ride. Human Fly was their first kind of original single that they would put out. Sweet name. And when I was reading this, it just blew my mind that we've also recorded there just throw that out there (laughs) yeah just gotta
0: work it in when you can bud so cool
2: so back in new york city they were headlining more gigs finally getting some real media attention from places like cbs that included them in a two-part punk rock phenomenon report so you know it was was starting they were still unsigned and trying to get a record made so you know that kind of helped and um they ended up releasing their singles, which were both covers, Surfing Bird and The Way I Walk. They released them independently on their own. They decided it was time to head down to LA for some gigs and show them, you know, what Rockabilly was all about. So some of the shows were successful, others less. They opened for the runaways which the sounds, like their musical, is is just so different. So it's kind of hard opening for bands that sound like one thing when you're so vastly different. You know, not Mm -hmm. everyone in the audience is going to get it. Um, They played one of their most infamous gigs, though, on June sixteenth, nineteen 1978. They played at the Napa State Mental Hospital. Okay. Yeah. They actually asked if they could play at a mental hospital. And... I will I will let Lux explain. We always wanted to play at a mental institution because we always had a problem with audiences not being quite what we'd like them to be. We thought if we went to a mental institution, the audience would contribute and they really did. There were male and female inmates humping each other on the ground. It was the most bizarre show we've ever done. Those people just went crazy doing everything you'd imagine people in a mental institution to do. People were licking the walls, people laying on each other and coming up to us talking to us while we were playing but mostly it was people dancing the weirdest dances you've ever seen i don't know how i feel about this a critic from the new york rocker was in attendance and he wrote i've never seen so much audience participation (laughs) one young lady jumped on lux's back and held on for a whole song screaming periodically into the mic this concert was actually filmed and you can find chunks on youtube you're kidding (laughs) yeah yeah. Oh my God. It's crazy. And I think seven or eight of the inmates got l- loose. Like it was, th- it was a thing. It ha- yeah. Okay. It must have been like the most lax mental hospital. Okie
0: okay, dokie then. But
2: yeah. Go on YouTube. Yeah. Maybe Go we on YouTube. should do a
0: live podcast. No. I'm just, <laughs> oh. I'm not going um, there.
2: They also played three gigs here in Toronto that year. Two of them at the horseshoe. They opened for The Clash in New York City, played to over 3,000 people. So they were getting, you know, good gigs. Horseshoe oh, is one of my favorite venues. Oh, yeah, me too. So they released their next single on Halloween of '78. That was Human Fly, that they recorded at Sun. And they also, uh, on the other side, it was Roy Orbitson's Domino, a cover of that. Um, they also shot a short film, short music video for the release of Human Fly, again, on YouTube. Check it out, it's awesome. So they were touring pretty often now, selling out gigs just on word of mouth, really. And finally, finally, record labels were kind of realizing there's something worth checking out here. I want to mention that while they did attempt to find a decent manager in the three years that they were label-less, uh, it was actually Ivy who covered all the business management side of things. Yeah. Yeah. She booked the tours. She was the one working out contract stuff. Um, IRS records came to them. They offered to reissue their independent singles as an EP, which was called Gravest Hits, and they offered a tour in the UK supporting the police. Nice. IRS Records, the founder is Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's brother. Alrighty. Hence the police. So the tour went incredibly well. UK audiences and critics, extremely receptive to them in a way the US never has been. The UK has better taste. I agree. Yeah. So that led to Miles Copeland offering to release a full LP. It was called Something the Lord Taught Us, and they recorded it in Memphis, not at Sun Studio, but at the Sam Phillips Recording Studio, which was a recording space they opened in 1960. And I looked it up and it's like a walk walking distance from Sun Studio. Cool. Yeah. Again, it was Alex Chilson as producer. So in 79, that was a major year for them, touring nonstop in the States and abroad with bands like the Dead Boys, the Buzzcocks, the Police, Iggy Pop. And they finished recording their first LP, which would be released in 1980. Very successful tours all over Europe. Uh, well in the UK, they also made a video for their next single, which was called Garbage Man. <laughs> it's a great song. So after the European tour, they came back to North America and Brian Gregory, the second guitarist, quit. Super unexpectedly. Lux says, we smoked opium. I said good night, went to bed, and the next morning he was gone. Mm, maybe so- it has something to do with that opium <laughs> maybe. Brian had his own issues. He was dealing with, including major insecurity, oversensitivity, along with a pretty bad heroin habit. Mm. So he also had goals of like making it big and was always trying to change the style and the image of the band in order to become kind of more mass friendly which is not something I- Lux or Ivy would ever consider doing. So I guess he just decided to move on. Brian went on to play in a band called Beast for a short time. He married an Australian woman named Robin Hunt. They created a horror TV show called Freezer, which unfortunately was never picked up. He did a cameo in George Romero's Day of the Dead as a zombie. Um, he ended up moving to Florida, managing an adult bookstore. An adult bookstore? Yes. Uh, then he really moved to made LA. It big there, yeah. But. Yeah. In 2001, he ended up passing away at age 49 from heart failure. So they got a replacement to finish out their tour commitments because Brian left it literally in the middle of a tour. Uh, and when that was done, they kind of took stock of everything and decided it was time for an even bigger change. And after five years of living in New York, they packed up their stuff and headed to LA. They just weren't happy in the New York scene. Like they never really felt like. They fit in, even though they did have friends there. So they started making the rounds of the local scene, checking out bands, seeing if there were any good replacements for Brian. And they did find one, another Brian, actually. Brian Tristan. With a Y or not? Brian Tristan, who would soon be dubbed Kid Congo Powers. (laughs) Kid Congo is also great friends with our friend Pleasant Gaiman.
0: Oh, no way. They were roommates
2: for years. And I've been thinking about her lately. We should check in. Cool. Pleasant's the best. Yes, we should. They were roommates for years, and he wrote for Pleasant's punk rock magazine uh, fanzine called Lobotomy back in the day. I think Kid and Pleasant kind of made up the most for that magazine, so they were really close.
0: And we have an interview on Pleasant Gaiman, so you guys yeah, can check, go out. check that She's out. Yeah, check it out.
2: She's a phenomenal woman. So he had he was actually like a massive cramps fan. So when they came to him and offered him a spot, he was both super intimidated but also like super excited. So he jumped at the chance. He kind of drove straight in with live shows and studio time as the band was ready to record their next album, Psychedelic Jungle," which they chose to self-produce with the help of studio engineer Paul McKenna in l a. So Kid says, I learned a lot fast. I really had to pay attention to Ivy, and she was actually a really good teacher. She showed me what to do. She's the coolest. Psychedelic Jungle was a success for the band. They sold double what they did their first one. They got pretty good reviews as well. They toured Europe again and with Kid this time. They found their fan base had grew bigger and crazier than ever. There's some great stories. I I should have mentioned this at the beginning. I'll mention it again at the end. I read a book called Journey to the Center of the Cramps by Dick Porter. This book was phenomenal. He not only tells their story, but he tells the story of like every band that they love, that they come in contact with. You're getting so much information and they talk about specific tour shows and there's just so much material in there that I haven't put in here. So like I really highly, highly recommend people read it. There's just so much good stuff. I'm going to put in one fun tour story because i actually just asked pleasant about it and she gave me a little piece of information so one of the stories was in la they're doing a gig there's candles all over the stage kid goes to grab some sunglasses like that were a prop for um, a song his hair sets on fire and uh it's just uh, so much hairspray it just like Oh my god up, right i asked pleasant i was like Are, were you there for that and she was like yeah like oh yeah yeah i saw that i saw that message yeah she was like um he referred to that incident as the burning bush uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah their, their live gigs must have been something else <laughs> um unfortunately you know while the touring and everything was great lux and ivy were not at all happy with their label and filed a million-dollar lawsuit in 1982 basically they weren't getting paid what they were owed and the label had released certain demos without their permission hey don't do that right the band just wanted off the label that's that was their goal funny enough they were kind of pissed at their label for focusing all their money and attention to promote the new go-go's album Beauty and the Beat Uh a little trivia the go-go's would also end up suing the label eventually mm. so hmm so because this lawsuit was put in action, basically they were labelists again, which meant that they would have to organize their own tours. And since they weren't in a good enough position to fund their own studio time, that would have to kind of go on hold while they booked live shows in order to support themselves. Their fan base was always happy to have them. But as the last, the lawsuit dragged on, their enthusiasm was sort of draining, like the band's enthusiasm. Nick Knox ended up in the hospital. I read this book and I looked online and different reasons are sort of given, but there's a direct quote from Ivy who says, Nick lost his eyesight in one eye from doing dope. That kind of scared everybody. We didn't do it anymore. I kind of, I mean, I assume maybe he got like an infection that like led to losing his sight in one eye or something.
0: And what do they mean by dope?
2: Like heroin. Oh, okay. Yes. So Nick's in the hospital, right? he's dealing with that. Unfortunately, Kid Congo is also kind of going down the the rabbit hole as it were. He says the morale of the band started to get down. I started to get estranged from the band. I was going on with my life, and my life included doing a lot of drugs. So,
0: oh no, are we like nearing the end here? Mm, okay. Oh, mm, um so there's They're feeling it, but they're still trying. They went back to
2: New York City, played some gigs. They also decided to record a live album in New York City and release that. The cramps were actually very highly bootlegged back then. They, people would tape their live shows, even their rehearsals and then sell them. So they figured they might as well record their live show themselves and, you know, actually earn some money themselves. So they went to mix the tracks on that. They realized it was some songs at least were unusable because kid was a little sloppy in live performances. Uh, again, he was dealing with his own issues. So Ivy had to overdub him. This along with kind of the unreliableness that comes with being an addict, they kind of decided to part ways with kid. Don't worry, kid's just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been itching to do new things with his other musician friends. He still had a place in the gun club. And, uh, around 1988, he joined Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds for a couple of years. Nice. Yeah. Um, he's always involved in some musical project or another. His band is called Kid Congo and the Pink Monkey Birds. So he's still out there making music and being kick ass. So with the legal battle going, IRS Records released a compilation called Off the Boned without the band's permission again, which sold like crazy. Uh, that was all money that they wouldn't see unless the lawsuit was over those, so they were not impressed. Um, they were also down a band member and couldn't play live shows in order to keep money coming in. So it ended up being two years before the lawsuit ended. As part of the terms, they aren't allowed to discuss the what deals were reached, but they were successful in their goal in getting off the label. Luck said more importantly, we learned to stay out of the music business as much as we possibly can, because the fact is it is the most corrupt business on the face of the earth. We know that now, don't we? Oh yes, we do. So needless to say, Ivy sort of became the man's, the band's manager again. They still had the live album they recorded in New York, and Ivy actually got a book and researched in regards to licensing and contracts. And she went to all these labels in like the UK and in France to reach small deals in order to just release the one record. She was she was amazing. So that was released, like I said, in the UK and France. They played some gigs with Nick's cousin filling in on guitar, but with no label, it turned in a lot of downtime. They kind of retreated into their own world again with their records. And like I said, check out YouTube. There's some great interviews with them at their house and everything, and you get to see all their kitschy stuff and... There's a beautiful quote I kind of wanted to add from Lux. I think you and I and maybe a lot of listeners will relate. He said, over the years, you get to know them just like they're friends. Friends you have on your mind and you think, oh, I want to listen to that. And you go and grab it. When you've got a lot of records, it's more fun. You can just go looking through them and always find something that you don't remember what it sounds like. And you rediscover something you haven't heard in
0: years. Mm. They were... Their records were their babies. Yeah, and so how's the relationship through all of this? Like it sounds they're, pretty good. There hasn't been much. No, fights
2: and bites. They were a team from like the yeah. get go. Friends and band members and stuff say like they never fought. They they were just the best. Cool. Yeah. So while during this downtime, they produced another band's music, The Mad Daddies. Ivy was working out deals with labels in France and New Zealand, Australia, and even Scandinavia to help release their next LP, which is called A Date with Elvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ivy took both guitar roles on this album. She really kicks ass on this album. So it was recorded as a trio. With no label hassling them, they were in charge of everything from production to cover art. It was released in February of 86. Uh, the British press were actually on them. At- about what they interpreted as sexist lyrics. This is what Ivy said about that. It's weird because they'll say we're sexist, but they don't even comment on my playing as being unique, which I find pretty sexist, (laughs) right? The kindest thing that's ever said critically is that I play as tough as a man, that's a pretty sexist crack. I play unique, innovative, original. I produce this band. I manage this band and anyone who says we're sexist is blind and uptight fist pumping in the air yeah Yeah. so they went on touring europe again the next two blaze players they had were women jennifer dixon did a short tour and then connie or candy delmar who was with them for their next album called stay sick which was released in 1990 would you rather be called connie or candy candy yeah me too Uh, so this time Ivy was able to score them a deal for a release in the US as well, so American fans didn't have to import, which they had to do for a date with Elvis. They made music video for their single, Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. (laughs) That's a lot of fun. After this record, both Candy and Nick left the band. Candy to work on other music projects and Nick mostly due to failing health. The tour lifestyle just wasn't for him anymore. I'm not sure what Nick did after leaving the cramps, but he passed away actually this year in June. Oh, wow. At 65. Yeah. So Lux and Ivy weren't deterred, though. They found replacements quick enough to release yet another album a year later called Look Mom, No Head. Again, with Ivy working out the licensing agreements and producing, Slim Chance played on bass. He was also in the Mad Daddies, who they produced, and on drums was Jim Skalavanos, who was from Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Slim... It was in the band for a while, but Jim was replaced. I told you there's a lot of replacements. Nikki Alexander for a short time. Nikki Alexander was from LA Guns, who was Axl Rose's band pre-GNR. Okay. Yeah. So many little bits of trivia. Oh, and Iggy Pop makes an appearance on this album. He sings a song called "Mini Skirt Blues." It came about because both Lux and Iggy were just at a convenience store, like buying booze. And they ran into each other. Nice. And Lux was like, come on over. And so he did. Obviously, they toured this album as usual. Nikki was replaced by Harry Drumdini. Okay. So their next album, 1994. Not the best name I've heard no. in this episode, but already. Very obvious, but okay. Uh 1994, they came out with Flame Job. They recorded a video for Ultra Your Twist. Flame Job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that video's on YouTube, Ultra Twist. It was an interesting year for the band. They did their usual shows, but they also appeared on Conan O'Brien, so they were getting like bigger stuff, and you'll never believe this. Hmm. They were on 90210. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In season six, there's an episode called Gypsies, Cramps, and Fleas. And just a little more trivia, because 90210 was my thing back in the 90s. Jason Priestley's fiance at the time was actually the one who wrote that episode because she was a fan and she's also an actress she was on 90210 her name's Christine Elise she played the infamous character Emily Valentine who from what i remember drugs Jason Priestley and then kind of stalks him for a while yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she wrote that episode and got them the, like the gig are they still married they weren't they never got married they were just engaged oh, okay yeah uh anyway the band performs at like the peach pits like after hours club i guess on halloween And yes, there is a clip on YouTube. (laughs) So soon, the band were celebrating their 20th anniversary with some special gigs, and Ivy struck a deal with Epitaph Records to record their next album. It was their seventh big beat from Badsville. Lots of touring for this one, actually. They went to Japan, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. They were doing over a 100 gigs a tour. Uh, they worked their asses off. Lux is in his 50s at this point, mm-hmm. like going all out. Ivy's getting near there as well. They played over a thousand gigs in their career. Like they toured a lot. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So between t- 97 and 2003, they didn't put anything out. They toured and did gigs here and there, but there was a full kind of 18 months where they're in their own world doing their own thing. Uh, Lux actually appeared in animated form as the singer of a band called bird brains on spongebob square bands <laughs> okay right it's interesting like with kind of cult bands that maybe not a lot of people know but certain people do and then they end up doing these bizarre yeah. cameos and whatnot so they began recording their final album in 2002 called fiends of dope island so chopper franklin played on bass for this one he was from a band called the joneses they released it on their Vengeance label, which was the one they made for their first EP when they released that independently. Ivy said, "We wanted to start with reissues just to learn how to be a label because we do everything. If you see an ad in a magazine, it's because we called and placed that ad." So, wow, Ivy, yeah,
0: Ivy did all the work. Especially now that we know how much goes into, you know, a band. Yeah. with like. The publicists and the manager and the promo people and the- And you gotta think like, not only
2: are there, are they touring and like, that's just so draining, but then Ivy's gotta be a manager while on tour and a performer. That's insane. Mm -hmm. At this point, they were now you know, financially well, not well off, but well enough where they could invest in their own work and fund the releases themselves so they wouldn't have to deal with another label. They never did find one they were happy working with. In 2004, they put out a compilation album, How to Make a Monster, which had early demos and rehearsals and live performances. And I think it had like a 20-something page book with it. They're still touring here and there. Their last show was in Arizona in 2006. They kind of went into their own little world again. Cramps fans were looking forward to something new. Unfortunately, Lux ended up passing away very suddenly on February 4th of 2009. Mm. He was 62, the cause was a tear in his aortic wall. Oh. Ivy has since retreated from the music world with her partner in crime no longer around. I thought I'd end the episode with three quotes. The first two are Lux and Ivy, you know, talking about their love for one another. So this is Ivy. There's not anything that we deny each other. We don't feel that either one of us has the right to say anything about the other's needs. We just have to trust that person and that what that person is entitled to. Fortunately, we happen to like a lot of the same things, but even if we didn't, that shouldn't matter. We're both free thinkers, we're nice to each other. There's all those reasons why we're together, but I also think it's kar- karmic. We're karmically entwined. Yeah. Aww. yeah. And there's a quote from Lux, he says, we always do everything together. In a way, it's one thing, me and her, but she's also very much an individual and very strong. She grows like a tree. She's faceted like a diamond. There's a million sides to ivy, and I just love them all.
0: That's beautiful. Right?
2: And the final quote. I love that it's just like we're nice to each other. Right. right? The final quote is from Kid Congo. Uh, he says, I speak to Ivy a few times a year, and if I'm in L.A., I go and see her. We keep a nice communication. I feel very close to Ivy, especially, and since Lux passed away, there's lots of good people around her, and everyone feels like that. She's great. She's wonderful. She's doing great. A beautiful, beautiful person.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I, I- love when you introduce me to new old bands, yeah. you know? Uh, they're, they're I can't so wait to watch fun. all the videos and see the pictures that we're going to post for oh, God, this. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. and again,
2: perseverance. I, right? I, I I can't imagine how terrible that must have been for Ivy to lose. Yeah. Not just Lux, but her band. You know, those are probably two most important things in her life. Mm-hmm. But it's nice that she's still around and happy and doing good. Try so. and get her the episode somehow. Oh, my God. <laughs> if only... Um, So, yeah, I highly recommend the book Journey to the Center of the Cramps. He goes into so much detail about the musicians and the filmmakers and just everyone who inspired them. He covers each album. He talks specifically about every song they recorded. Lots of fun stories from them touring. Just a ton of more detail than that, like, I couldn't put in this episode. Wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Another... um
0: Another great episode. Thanks, Lynx. No
2: problem. And go to YouTube, check out their videos, check out some of that stuff. You'll have a blast watching them.
0: Okay, will do. And um, hopefully by the next episode, which will come out in a fortnight, <laughs> yeah. my voice will be better. And in the meantime, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, Muses and Stuff podcast, and Twitter, uh, Shanti and Lynx. Shanti with a Y. Yeah. Lynx with a Y. Yeah. And an X. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.
1: Muses and Stuff is produced by Chantelle Lemieux and Link Soler. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information.